Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Well, welcome back to another exciting episode of NucleCast. Today, I have a very special guest. Some of you may remember, especially those of you Air Force folks, you may remember Nicholas Shalon, who served as the Air Force's first, very first, Chief Software Officer. Of course, uh, he is now the founder of Learn With Nick, and he is a fellow podcaster and host in the nick of time. Nice play on words, Nick. Uh, so welcome into to NucleCast. Uh, thanks for having me. Very excited. So as we talked about before the show, I wanted to, given your, your you know, background in the cyber world, I wanted to talk to you about the development of a new NC3 architecture. We're moving from analog systems that still require floppy disks, and we're moving to a fully digital architecture. And there are many folks who say, how do we do this? How do we make sure it's secure? Uh, they've, they've seen the, the hacking that takes both place in government, whether it's the OPM hack or the, the DOD hack, or whether it's the hack of the gas pipelines, the ransomware attacks. There, there's been a lot going on. And so folks are justifiably concerned, can we secure a future NC3 system? And I couldn't think who better than you to come on to talk about that. Yeah, it is a very complex problem, no doubt. So as you think about it, having spent time with the Air Force, and you think about the problem, how do you broadly categorize this problem and then think about solutions to it? Well, definitely what you're going to see here is obviously we are modernizing NC3. And, and at the same time, what you what you realize is that the, the teams uh, managing and, and maintaining uh, a lot of these systems have been uh, uh, doing this for, for many years in, in the legacy uh, systems. And uh, they have yet to see even basic things like uh, TCP IP and, uh, you know, modern Linux uh, operating systems. And so it is a massive... Uh, uh, lift to get to where they want to be. Uh, obviously, at the same time, people argue that uh, you know the, the more uh, legacy we we stick to, the the more secure we would be um, because people would not be able to figure out figure out a way to uh, to get into the systems, which is true and not true. Uh, obviously, the air gapped uh, component of uh, of the security is essential. At the same time, you know, we've been connecting systems and creating this Jed C two join all the main command and control uh, ecosystem, and that's opening uh, the door to malicious actors potentially getting into some of these critical systems. And so, I think at the end of the day, we want to use best of breed, and we tried to do that and started uh, in the Air Force with uh, 
the program GBSD, which is modernizing uh, all the ground uh, nuclear systems. And we were able to start bringing modern technologies and things like Kubernetes and containers. And, uh, but obviously, it was a pretty big lift to even educate the uh, assessment teams and the TNE teams to be able to understand what's going on. And, and uh, honestly, it's, it's going to be a, a, a training issue, but it's also going to be um, a, a pretty heavy discussion with NSA and uh, really getting down to how do we end up securing these uh, systems. Now, as you think about that very question of securing systems, uh, what what comes to mind for you as far as th- sort of a broad solution? I participated in some of the JADC2 work, and I was sort of concerned about how the development was going and this sort of off-the-shelf app model that it seemed to be driving towards. And th- some of the interoperability to me seemed to open us up to quite a bit of uh, opportunity for malicious actors, as you said, uh, but and since we commingle nuclear command and control systems with conventional command and control systems, how do we secure our NC three architecture? Well, I can tell you for sure that uh, moving to a JetC two ecosystem without having that uh, zero trust uh, baked in security would be completely criminal. <laughs> Uh, effectively, you're giving the keys to the kingdom to to China and Russia. Um, you know, connecting these systems that were designed not to be connected whatsoever, obviously, will will be very challenging. Just as simple things as uh, managing identities of these systems to know who is who and who is connecting to what and how. Uh, if, if you look at uh, you know NF35 talking to NF22 and then connecting maybe to uh, to a command, command and control and having a satellite uh, push imagery to, to the C2 and then be able to uh, analyze the, the imagery using AI machine learning to augment the data to find objects in on there and then be able to uh, you know have humans decide to shoot whatever target on there. All these uh, kind of kill chain uh, examples require uh, from the get-go uh, strong identities, short-lived identities that can be uh, secure and well uh, guarded uh, to make sure that there is no uh, third-party asset that managed to pretend to be some something else and uh, end up connecting to to the ecosystem. And then, of course, you have the aspect of zero trust. You know what should be able to talk to what and how, and how do you reduce the attack surface if you start just connecting everything together, just like an all-day uh, VPN? You would end up uh, opening an attack surface that would be. Uh, tremendous and uh, quite honestly uh, uh, would be uh, very damaging to national security. Now, you mentioned zero trust architecture, and as I understand it, and correct me and explain for the audience because they may not understand it very well, in, in, a, in the ZTA, there is sort of one central node that controls all of the trust. And that it's the dispersed nodes where there is, you know, zero trust. Is is that a, an accurate explanation of how it works? Yeah, I, I think there's, you know, there's a little bit of uh, maturity there in terms of different layers of, of technology. But but effectively, what you, you're going to find is uh, what we call a policy enforcement point. 
that's deciding who gets access to what and how based on different conditions. And the key of the capability we built for the Air Force and Space Force, which was, by the way, the largest implementation of zero trust uh, in the world uh, back you know, two and a half years ago, three years ago now, um, you're going to find both the enforcement of the user identity, whether it's a, it's a human or if it's a, if it's a system, uh, but also the enforcement of, of the device being used. So if you use a personal device or if you use a, a government-furnished equipment device, uh, that will be a, a different outcome. And of course, depending on the classification levels, you could say, hey, you know, if, if I use a, a super laptop, then I get access to super data. But if, I, if I'm on my personal cell phone, you know, I, I only get access to impact level two data. Uh, and then maybe if I'm on the Mayan class uh, uh, GFE laptop, I get access to, you know, CUI. Uh, but again, uh, the policy enforcement point is, is, is there to, uh, to enforce what you get to see. And, and what's essential here is the concept of uh, a software-defined uh, parameter, which is effectively a fancy way to say uh, each combination of, of device and user gives you access to a dedicated network, uh, which effectively does not enable you to scan the network to find uh, assets that you're not supposed to have access to. And so that limits the attack surface uh, unlike, you know, a VPN where you could effectively scan the entire network and find assets you're not even supposed to know exist, in this use case, the, the Zero Trust architecture enforces uh, and creates a, a dynamic uh, on-demand uh, network per user slash device pair uh, to then be able to uh, give access to things. And the policy enforcement point is centralized, but that doesn't mean it becomes a massive bottleneck. That's kind of the issue you're going to be facing with DoD. You know, people love to centralize and create bottlenecks, but but the way we implemented it uh, in the Air Force and Space Force was a complete decentralization of the the policies. Right. So while you have a centralized enforcement point, uh, you you delegate down to the data owner uh, who decides uh, who gets access to what for their data. And so you remove that bottleneck and that uh, PEP policy enforcement point stack can be decentralized, meaning it can be distributed at the edge. Uh, so let's say you have an, an implementation in, you know, Paycom, uh, you could go disconnected for a while because of, you know, no internet access or whatever, uh, or no connectivity whatsoever. And you can still have access to the local uh, cache of the policies. So you can still do business uh, while being disconnected and then, and then connect back, right, and resynchronize. So now you have access back to the uh, the live policy access. And so, you know, p- people get worried about, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, a policy enforcement point is centralized, but it can be distributed, right? So it's a centralized uh, enforcement point, uh, but it's distributed at the edge and, and across networks, but also across cloud providers as well. And it's enforcing the same way with the same, uh, capabilities across all these environments, so you have no drift between classification levels. Yeah, I guess my question was just thinking about Chinese efforts because if I'm the the Chinese or the Russians, and and I'm thinking about conflict with the United States, the first thing I'm gonna I'm gonna do is is launch cyber attacks pre any kind of kinetic conflict, and so I would attack command and control, uh, that'd be the first thing I do. And then I'd try to blind the United States in space. And so I, I'd wonder like with these, these PPs, will, will that offer, you know, sort of a centralized 
hub for Russians or Chinese to try to attack uh, command and control in in the future? Well, th- definitely, I guess, in the sense of, of the, the police enforcement point becoming your crown jewel, uh, just like your identity management stack, right? Um, the, the same way if, if a malicious actor were to gain access to our identity management stack and be able to create fake identities or, or get access to existing identities or change you know, access control to those identities, uh, obviously the damages would be tremendous. Um, I guess in this use case, the, the police enforcement point becomes also part of your crown jewel. There's a few things like that, right, that, that really should be uh, very well guarded. Um, you know, that's why I even argued during the Jet C2 discussions that we should not let uh, each duty uh, service do their own things in vacuums. Because the fact is, if you want to implement zero trust, you cannot be blindly trusting a federated a policy enforcement point from uh, the Navy or the Army or, or the Fourth Estate, uh, because now you're effectively trusting um, without zero trust. And so right, having a centralized back, exactly. right, it's so essential. And and it does become part of your crown jewel, but just like the White House, it's a crown jewel for the president. Uh, you know, and, and if you talk to Secret Service, they're going to tell you it's much easier to secure one house than having a bunch of them. And there's a whole debate about that insecurity, right? Is it better to have a bunch of them distributed? Is it just easier to have one stack and protect it? My take in that this kind of stuff, there's very few things that needs to be centralized and enterprise driven. And identity management is one. And police enforcement point is, is clearly the second because you want to have the same enforcement across across every um every systems and if you if you let people do things in vacuums you're gonna have different level of maturity uh, and all the stuff we just talked about if you look at uh, you know where the air force and space force is when we when i left and still today uh, we were way far ahead from everybody else and so why would people not want to use best of breed and why would we you know build stuff in vacuums uh, which effectively lower security uh because of the lack of maturity of of, of the other teams and implementations yeah, it's it's a great question, and and as I talk to folks who are working these issues, and I ask, you know, what, you know, have you figured figured out what the solution is? And of course, the answer is no. And so, if if you were sitting there with everybody trying to think through how do I build the next NC three architecture, um, what would you tell them? What would you advise them? Well, they, they, I think we really have to embrace the the modern uh, cyber principles. There's a few key, what I call the the key pillars of cybersecurity today, which is one is moving target defense. So moving target defense means that everything is short lived. Um, you know, in, in in platform one, which is the the DevSecOps stack of the Air Force and Space Force and and the rest of DoD now, uh, what we managed to do is, uh, you know kill the software every four hours using containers so it resets itself. Uh, so if a malicious actor get access or get a foothold in one of the containers, it goes back to immutable state. And so you always mm-hmm. reset you know, every four hours. And so it's kind of an enforcement of, of immut- immutability. And so moving target defense is essential. Uh, that's the same thing for identity management, right? If you, if you have short-lived identities, uh, for systems to talk to each other and people to access systems. So not just a uh, person entity, but non-person entity, meaning, you know, systems talking to other systems, uh, you drastically reduce the ability of a malicious actor get access to a key or get access to a, 
to an identity to use it to uh, laterally move to the crown jewels. And so having these uh, to be short-lived is essential. And then, of course, you have zero trust, which will uh, drastically reduce your attack surface by uh, creating this uh, dynamic network uh, based on you know who the, the person is or the system is and the state of the device being used, you know, if it's patched, if it's up to date, you know, where it's located. We have uh, geofencing, we have a time of day, you know, you could you could create a lot of different enforcement rules to limit who gets access to what and when. Uh, and then, you know, we have continuous monitoring with behavior uh, prevention, which is effectively uh, looking at the runtime of the system uh, continuously 24 seven and looking for drift. You know, Platform mm-hmm. One has a capability where if a container starts running commands or running something it's never done before, it will kill the container and go back to mutable state uh, to then alert you know, the, the cyber teams as well. Uh, so for a malicious actor you know, to, to get into the system and retain access and laterally move, if you, if you add all these three things together, you get that centralized logging and telemetry and alerting so you know exactly what's going on and when. But you also get this enforcement layer, and you know the, the other piece that's so essential in modern um, capabilities like this is the uh, DevSecOps capabilities. You know, when we built Platform One, um, having uh, 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 the same orchestration stack and the same platform uh, to um, to see how the software is going to be running and and the networking is going to be whitelisted and the traffic will be tracked and the logs will be centralized and the telemetry flowing and all the enforcement points uh, being uh, uh, the same across all these environments, that gives you effectively the ability to focus your cybersecurity teams on one orchestration stack and enforce it across you know, the, the entire stack. I have a video on, on YouTube uh, where we explain why you know, Kubernetes is a must uh, in modern uh, systems, including when you think it's overkill um, and we demonstrated that on jets and bombers and, and other systems because uh, of the cyber benefits alone, you know, let alone the, the velocity and the ability to move fast and move at a pace of relevance. And in this case, it's it's really a cyber benefit. And so people that care about cyber and argue that you know cyber is the most important thing in this use case, which I agree it is, then you would want to have all these things baked in. And it cannot be an afterthought. So you have to go back to uh, you know being... Uh, enabling the teams to have this as a foundation of doing business. Well, we're about midway through the show, so we're going to take a quick break. We're with Nicholas Shalon, and we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the 15th Annual Nuclear Deterrent Summit. Come join NucleCast at the Summit on February 13th through 15th, 2023 at the Hyatt Regency Crystal City, Arlington, Virginia. Industry and government experts will be discussing management of the nuclear security complex, stewardship of the nuclear stockpile, arms control negotiations, and strategic policy. Stop by the NucleCast booth to say hello. Executive producer Kimberly Charrington and I will be there interviewing guests for upcoming episodes. You can find a registration link to the Nuclear Deterrent Summit with a 15% discount on the Nuclecast website at anwadeter.org slash Nuclecast. All right, you're listening to 
Nuclecast. Of course, I'm Adam Lowder, your host, and we're talking with Nicholas Shalon, the former chief software officer of the United States Air Force, and uh, one of the clearly one of the brightest guys in the cyber world right now. And we were talking about the NC3 architecture and the how do we secure this new architecture. Now, could you take a step back and explain for some of the listeners who may not be familiar, DevSecOps, what is it and how is it being implemented to what end in the DOD? Yeah, DevSecOps is really the, the uh, most important enablers of success. You know, people that don't, use, uh, you know, DevSecOps in 2023, you know, let alone uh, 2022, uh, you know, cl- clearly uh, you, you, you will not have a chance of being able to uh, move at a pace of relevance. Um, and it, it enables a few things. One, it removes bottlenecks and walls between development teams, cyber teams, and operation teams so that your software is not being built in a vacuum. You have rapid feedback, you know, in production from the end users, the wall fighters, to know exactly if what you're building makes sense. You can release software multiple times a day, including, you know, in very complex systems because it's very small incremental uh, delivery of value. Instead of doing these massive five-year releases, you're going to cut it into very small pieces. And, you know, a good example of that is SpaceX that can update software, you know, an hour before the launch. And, uh, you know, people argue, well, you know, SpaceX had uh, issues back in the day, but none of these issues were software related. It was always hardware issues. Um, and honestly, the velocity of, of enabling the teams to to update uh, the rocket before the launch has been uh, probably why they, they were able to also avoid uh, many software uh, issues uh, along the way. And, and they just achieved a, a massive number of launches. I think it was 60 launches uh, last year. Uh, more than pretty much anybody can do. Uh, and that tells you, you know, that that velocity and that ability to compete and keep up, even for the DoD, you know, we don't realize sometimes and we, we like to forget it. But the fact is we're competing against China. You know, I, I'm not going to mention Russia too much anymore, but I would say, you know, uh, China is definitely leading in hypersonic and quantum compute, AI, machine learning and, and different things. Um, and so every enabler that's going to enable your teams to uh, remove bottlenecks, uh, the first one obviously uh, has been massive for, for us in the Air Force and Space Force has been the uh, uh, continuous authority to operate, the, the CATO, which gives you the ability to uh, continuously release software multiple times a day. Uh, Platform 1 is up to 21 times a day per program now, which is a massive number uh, mm-hmm. for DoD. We're not at you know Facebook levels, but that's okay. You know, uh, and the, the velocity you get there and the ability to automate your, your ATO process is game-changing. In fact, in one year uh, doing DevSecOps back in 2019, we saved 100 years of time. So that's time that – and, and you know, we say saved, but I would argue maybe we just didn't waste it, right? Because that's the whole debate. Yeah. Are we, you know, if, if others are not uh, wasting the time, uh, then it's not saving, it's wasting, right? Yeah. So y- you said – this I, this idea of brief periods of trust of identities of your bins. What else do you think needs to be incorporated into a new NC three architecture? Well, you know what was interesting was the fact that uh, if you look at SpaceX again, I'm going to use them because quite honestly, you know when we talk to people, you know, using example like Netflix, you know, they just oh we don't we don't do a freaking you know video app, right? And I get it, right? It's true, 
but when you use SpaceX as an example, you're pretty close to the DoD mission there, right? So, sure. uh, you know, whether it's uh, with a nuclear silo on top or not, I mean, sure, it, it you know adds certainly <laughs> an additional level of of uh, issues, but. Uh, the fact is, you know, it, it's it's life and death uh, too. So, you know, I, I think it's a good example. Uh, so with SpaceX, you know, what they were able to do is use the commercial hardware and, and more importantly, uh, commercial open source uh, software stacks. And I know a lot of people are going to freak out about this, but the fact is uh, being able to use best of breed open source capabilities like Linux, um, not have to rely on, on uh, secret sauce, real-time OS systems that have very limited a set of uh, applications around that. It's, it's not just about the operating system itself. It's about all the tools, the development tools, the testing tools, the automation tools, uh, the cyber tools, the runtime tools. All these are very limited when you're going to go after very, uh, uh, you know, closed IP uh, companies that, that just do DoD stuff for a living. And, and and so you you're very limited in, in options, right? And 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 capabilities. And quite honestly, they're often lagging ten to twenty years behind what you see on the commercial side. So SpaceX decided to pick you know Linux and do a real time OS patch that they open source to the community. Um, they're using non space hardware, um, and by the cost savings and the space savings, they're able to actually put twenty times more uh, hardware. So if something goes wrong with a couple of them, they don't care because there's a diversity of options and uh, of, of of numbers of, of devices. And so it's actually more resilient uh, compared to what they could have done with a, you know, a secret sauce a space capability. So I think it's kind of the same mindset, right? Uh, you, at the very least, you want to embrace uh, modern uh, capabilities. You know, open source scare people. I'm not saying you just sure. should pick whatever open source capabilities and hope for the best. There is a process to vet and understand, uh, you know, uh, the, the ecosystem around open source projects. And we do a very poor job. I was pretty shocked to find that, uh, you know, we had no capabilities to assess open source projects whatsoever in the department. No one is actually in charge of vetting uh, any of these projects. In fact, there is no centralized vetting of, of commercial software as well which create a massive amount of waste. You know, we were the first one to create, you know, a centralized repository of containers with Iron Bank in Platform One, which has now a, a thousand plus containers, both from open source and commercial uh, products who centrally vet them and scan them and see and understand the risk and provide it back to uh, DoD programs to use. Uh, that should be the only way to do business, right? So I think uh, back to, to your point, you know, the NC3 community should really embrace that centralized mindset and work on accrediting software and components as a, as a whole instead of doing it per program and per engagement. We see the Navy doing things in vacuum, vacuums. We see the Air Force doing it in vacuums, right? So the more we can uh, partner in the NC3 community and, and merge, and, and, you know, people freak out when we reuse stuff across programs because they, they feel like it's a security risk. But I would argue... With the lack of talent and the complexity of the systems we we build, quite honestly, doing uh, not doing it is actually more risky, uh, because quite honestly, the teams are not very good at doing it and assessing risk of these this software. And so you're gonna have different teams assessing um, the same software 20 million times. Often that leads you to uh, being so far behind in releases, right? Ten, you know, five, six, seven, ten years uh, behind in in releases. You want to you want to use some component 
you're stuck with a version from uh, you know 2010 or to, or, or 2000. Mm-hmm. You know that creates risk, right? And and having the ability to centrally assess and understand risk and updates dependencies uh, to make sure we're not stuck in time. That's as important, right? Timeliness and security in cyber is as important as doing proper assessments. And if you if you if if you're creating bottlenecks, you're creating risks. Now you mentioned one of the things that I sort of uh, my ears perked up, and this idea of being able to to scan and vet software that maybe you know it, maybe it's uh, off the shelf software for something because that is one of the clearly one of the big concerns is how do we how do we effectively vet this software that we may be considering for integration into because the NC3 system, you know, it's a system of systems with more than a hundred individual systems that are all brought together. Uh, Can we effectively vet and then patch uh, software that me, that we may want to bring into a new architecture? Well, if, if we start centralizing that work, yes, but if we keep doing it in vacuums per team, and every of these systems are reassessing the same bits of software, that's where you're going to fail, right? And this is why we're failing. Um, and that's why we're stuck in time and, and we feel it's actually, and you know, there's this mentality uh, in DoD, but particularly in the NC3 community to, uh, uh, you know, have this black box and, and feel safe. You know, when we brought the F35 uh, SAP, you know, box on, at the Black Hat, you know, the, the, the hacker conference, they got it in three minutes and it was supposed to be the thing that no one even heard about. And, you know, using special secret sauce, DOD stuff that no one else is using. Uh, guess what? Didn't stop them from getting in and uh, control the box in, in minutes. Um, so this idea of, of black box and putting our hand in the sand and, and hiding stuff, you know, honestly, the the best security is when you can be, you know, I'm not going to say open, but but as open as possible and, and still feel safe, right? And and, and know that you, you've done your job to secure the system and have multiple layers of def- defense. And, 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 you know, at the end of the day, I'm not saying we should just be open and, and, you know, open everything. But the fact is when you just rely on opacity and black boxes to be secure, that's when you're not. Yeah, it's a good point. So as we end the show, because we're about out of time, if you were to leave the leadership of the Air Force, uh, the leadership, perhaps corporate leadership that's building these these new systems, uh, what would you say to them? What would be your sort of your, you know, your drop the mic and walk out the door moment on <laughs> NC3? <laughs> Well, you know, the, the issue we, we're facing is these systems get upgraded every 50, 70 years, right? And so there's a tendency already to be cautious, overly cautious. And now you, you're effectively building today software using already 20 years old technologies. We can't afford to do this anymore, right? Just in terms of cybersecurity, what we find is, you know, malicious actors will be able to to find ways to get into systems we don't even comprehend yeah, through AI and machine learning. You know, I've been working on a on the chat uh, GPT bot and it can do things you wouldn't believe. You know, it's just the human cannot even comprehend what the AI is able to uh, to come up with. And so it would be, I would be, you know, I think the next generation of malicious actors are going to be robots, right? And uh, empowered, you know, uh, through automation. So I, I think we have to be very cautious 
in not building the system that's going to last for another, you know, 50, 70 years with already 20 old tech stacks, you're compounding the problem. And so, you know, we're going to have to go a little bit outside of the comfort zone and often it's going to be a first, right, for these teams to use the technology, which creates a little bit less lift. And, you know, they're going to say it's too risky, right, because we don't know enough about it. But but maybe not doing it is actually a bigger risk. They just don't understand it yet, right? So I so I really you know recommend first you know training and learning, right? Spend an hour a day to learn, uh, you know go go watch some of our videos on YouTube. You know it's free. Go check it out. Um, go outside of your comfort zone. Keep reinventing yourself. Uh, you know I have this tagline: invest in yourself. You know that's what people don't do enough in IT, right? The velocity of IT is such that you can't get stuck in time. And you get away with it in duty, but it doesn't mean you should, right? Yeah. Uh, so again, it, it goes back down, you know, to, to people and it, it, the leadership. You know, of course, uh, they're gonna say, you know, we want to build the best of breed and be secure and safe. Well, you know, secure and safe for people will automatically mean we're not gonna take risk and we're gonna use technologies that are well proven. And by proven, they mean in duty with what we know, which is twenty years old. You know, that's not the answer, right? The answer is. Um, Proven technologies on the commercial side in industry outside of the defense industrial base and use best of breed and move forward and keep learning and keep trying things out. You know, programs cannot be stuck in time anymore, 50, 70 years. We don't have that luxury anymore. So we we need to think outside the box. All right. Well, we'll let that be the last word. I want to thank Nick Shalon for coming on and talking with us about uh, cybersecurity and NC3. He's the, the former, the first the first and former <laughs> chief software officer, and he's now the founder of Learn With Nick. So check him out on online, and uh, I want to thank you for coming, Nick. It, it was a it was yeah, a great talk. I, I learned something about DevSecOps, so I, I always appreciate That's good. that. I did my job. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, the listeners, uh, for, for listening to the show, and we'll see you next time. Okay. So we just had a conversation with Nicholas Shalon, IT guy. Uh, I spent a year as an information assurance fellow at at AFRL up in Rome with Kamal Jabor and his folks. And that really expanded my brain and, and pushed me in ways I wasn't comfortable. But this conversation did the same thing. So I was listening very carefully and trying to put everything he said in the context of my limited knowledge of, of cyber, but I think it was really interesting and just, I was glad to hear his perspective and there, you know, there's a variety of perspectives out there, but I was glad to hear his perspective on how do we build a secure NC3 architecture. And so listen, I hope you listen carefully, maybe listen a second time. If it, if be if you didn't understand everything he said, but I, it was a good show and it was interesting. Hope you enjoyed it. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 